This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everybody. I hope you're all doing well. It's always sad to see the resident birds on our properties take off and head southward for the winter. But the good news is we get to watch the incredible diversity of migrants coming through our yards as they sample the native seeds, nuts, berries, and insects we have cultivated for their ongoing survival. Speaking of bird survival, I think we've got an interesting show for you today. Today, we've invited back Dr. Daniel Clem to talk to us about how to prevent birds from striking windows. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Today we have with us Dr. Daniel Clem. Dr. Clem has dedicated his life to researching the dangers of windows to birds. This is an especially important topic right now because birds are in great danger of striking glass while they are migrating. Okay, and now I'd like to welcome Dr. Daniel Clem, noted ornithologist from Muhlenberg College. Dr. Clem, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's a continued privilege, Catherine, and I'm so grateful that you continue to have interest in this important conservation issue for birds and people. Yeah, I, I asked you to come back on the show. I know we talked about a year and a half ago, but I'm just so excited about your book and the way it explains the dangers. And of course, I'm talking about solid air, invisible killer. Could you give us a recap? I know we talked about this before in the last show, but if you could just tell our listeners again, what led you to write this book and why is it so important? Okay, uh, uh, that's a great opportunity for me. First of all, this January 2024 will mark literally 50 years, half a century that I have been formally studying, writing, and teaching about this conservation issue. And the issue is that birds, unfortunately, the windows in our homes and workplaces are just invisible to them. And they kill themselves in the billions the world over, wherever there are birds and, and glass. We have these tragedies. And I wrote the book to try to stimulate a critical mass of the general public that in turn would put some pressure on our developers and architects and the built environment in general to transform it into a safe place for birds. Uh, you may all have remembered that there was a famous study published in 2019 in one of our most prestigious uh, science journals called science. And in this 2019 article, it was pointed out that 3 billion individual birds in North America have been lost 
from the continental population since 1970 to present. And windows, it turns out, is a big contributor to this mortality. So this is an environmental issue that people can do something about. It's not as complex as climate change and other things. And we could solve this problem tomorrow. We just have to get the ear of the right people and the action of the general public in general to start educating and informing and in stimulating our lawmakers to produce further guidelines to help these birds uh, get through the year and and survive. That is great. Well, I, I just wanted to ask you, what is your sense right now of how birds are doing in general? Well, that little population decline that I just mentioned, which is not so little, is it losing literally 29% of the North American population since 1970 to the present is a continuous challenge. And uh, our populations are continuing to suffer. This issue, for example, on the windows, you know, I, I, I don't see the critical mass of the general public being concerned. I, I see more interest, but we don't see the kind of progress we'd like to see to make a real help in terms of doing uh, for the birds. One thing, you know, I like to describe is that we shouldn't be arguing about which kinds of actions we humans are doing and responsible for bird deaths around the world. Uh, we should be solving all of them, of course, uh, but scale does matter. And so, you know, in the United States alone, a million birds a day die flying into windows every day of the year. Uh, you know, this is such a horrific and unnecessary loss. You know, we we have to we have to do something about that. So tell me, what do you feel it will take to educate people about the dangers of glass? Boy, you know, I I wish I had the answer because my wife, she always chastises me when I give talks and I point out that, gee, I've been doing this for such a long time. And what kind of progress can we actually see in terms of education and action and and then I go on to say, well, I guess because we've had so little, I qualify at least as the definition of an educational failure. You know, she doesn't like that, and I and I don't like it either. But the facts are, I don't have a way of doing it, a way of, of of transforming that into more meaningful and more action. You know, look at I think here we've got these unbelievably beautiful, aesthetically pleasing, economically valuable animals that we humans in our culture and, and in our recreation admire. And they're being lost for the senseless, you know, they, the windows are just invisible to them and they take the strongest members of their population as well as the weakest. So why haven't these victims, these innocent victims that have no voice of their own, why haven't they attracted the attention of our young people and others around the world? Why hasn't this issue gone viral? It doesn't. And for years, even in my book, I pleaded, I said, gee whiz, can we get an environmentalist that's a celebrity to help us further draw attention to this need? I mean, I'm groping for every possible straw to try to get this information out, to stimulate action, to help these, again, mostly unbelievably commercial, you know, your, your credit card or whatever it is that you're tempting to buy is priceless. Well, these animals are priceless. Who would want their children to grow up in a world without birds? I mean, the value that they offer us is so great, and the attention we're giving to their protection is so little, 
it's almost tragic. It's it is tragic, right? It almost uh, is emotionally tragic to try to try to explain how much need we have and how much is yet to be done. Do you think people in general really connect with the idea that animals suffer? Because of course we know from your research and other research that these birds not only hit glass, uh, they suffer a great deal. Is there a disconnect there, psychologically speaking, for humans? Well, you know, we humans have this long history of being sort of selfish, right? I mean, we're, the worlds we live in are can be confining and the interests we have are so narrow. And the the prospect of trying to, again, extrapolate to other living things and the fact that they could be suffering and experiencing these these things gets compartmentalized in my view, right? And and we tend to forget and not reach out or not expand our 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 sphere of influence where we could do more good. Yeah, I I I think people don't think about it. For example, I think most people it's like when I first started studying this in the 1970s, I remember the most ardent conservationists, people that I admired, and they'd look me right in the eye and they'd say, you know, Dan, you go mucking around with the way I look out of my window in my home or in my workplace, and you're going to lose. Nobody's going to pay attention to you. Well, I'm happy to report that over 50 years, that has changed. And we've got more people that are interested in trying to help the birds. And they're even interested in doing it in their homes. But by and large, I think one of the resistance that people have is they're afraid that getting bird-safe glass, for example, in their home or their workplace is going to, number one, cost too much. And number two, it's going to detract from the very things that they find of value looking out their windows. And I think both of these things can be addressed. Number one, the cost is relatively meager to put in bird-safe glass, number one. And number two, people can become accustomed to whatever so-called visual noise, which can be rather modest and minor to save and protect the birds. There was a study done, for example, by a researcher in Austria that pointed out that covering literally 7% of a window with dots or lines saved as much birds as you would for covering 50% of the window with those dots and lines. So a very modest footprint on the glass can do a great deal. I just returned from uh, in August, uh, second week, 19th or so of August, from a trip in Maine where I was invited to speak about this issue. And the traction was that my hosts, Jeanette and uh, Derek uh, Lovich, had built a home, right, that has bird-safe glass in it using uh, manufacturers from Walker, for example, from Montreal and Quebec, their glass. They have a whole brand uh, that's uh, available to be used in new construction and, and residential homes and other things like acopian bird savers and the feather friendly decals that have been used to place on windows to retrofit them. They transformed their home, their living quarters into a demonstration for a residential home that could be applied around the world. And so that was the attraction for me because uh, again, a study several years ago, for example, documented that of the 1 billion birds projected to die every year from striking windows, 44% of them die at at, at homes, you know, dwellings, uh, residential homes, and uh, commercial buildings one to three uh, stories high. Uh, and 56% die from commercial buildings that are four to 11 stories high, and less than 1% dies at urban centers and skyscrapers, but the 1%, less than 1% that die in the cities in these urban skyscrapers get most of the attention 
You know, they that's where the reporters live. That's where they write about this issue. But people are missing the whole point that it's our individual homes that are the biggest killers because there's so many more of them. And here was a couple that was willing to dedicate and use their home as a model. Uh, these, this Lovich, uh, Jeanette, and and Derek, they run a, a bird supply, Freeport Wild Bird Supply is their business, and they talk up this issue. They mercifully, you know, have my book on display there. They have examples in their, not only in their home, but also in their workplace. And uh, so they're, they're, they're doing their part, but we have to use them as a model. We have to try to encourage others that that this is a reasonable thing to ask. And it's really worthy of our attention because of, again, the value of these animals we're trying to save. Well, I think it's wonderful that the Loviches would open their home like that to uh, use it as a model for others to keep birds safe. I, I was going to say uh, the history of glass manufacturing took a big turn in 1977. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about when it went from plate glass to safety glazing. And um, I remember years ago as a reporter, the pivotal case where a, a young three-year-old boy, had it was wintertime, it was Christmas time. He'd just gotten a tricycle for Christmas. And of course it was snowing out. So he was riding the tricycle inside the house slammed the tricycle accidentally up against the uh, storm back storm door, which was plate glass. And he uh, was sev- basically severed in half oh. by the glass. And there was a hue and a cry from the public all over the New England area about what a unsafe situation it was. And the glass manufacturing company listened and for the first time ever, they started creating safety glazing, which means that, you know, you know, if um, a rock hits your windshield, you don't get yeah. those huge cracks and it, it doesn't fall in on you on the highway. It cubes. It goes it breaks up into cubes that are yeah. round, have rounded edges. So I'm thinking, what is that watershed moment we need for birds where people are finally going to throw up a hue and a cry and say, I'm sick to death of finding dead cedar waxwings in front of my kitchen window. There's got to be some pivotal situation that is going to switch people over. And when I worked for a newspaper, I was interviewing a hunter. He said to me, you know, you cannot be a successful hunter unless you can objectify the animals. This is getting back to the psychological side of things. Mm -hmm. He said, "If, if you cannot achieve objectification in other words turn that deer or that mallard duck into a thing and not a living being you'll never make a good hunter because you won't be able to pull the trigger and i said to him why he said because of the emotions involved in killing a living being yeah you have to switch over to think of, think of it as an object and then you can be a successful hunter so the reason i bring that up is because i think a lot of people have been brought up to think of birds as objects. There's not not really an emotional connection there, but a connection of empathy. Unfortunately, I think it takes seeing 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 birds piling up under your window before it hits you. Holy cow, you know, these birds are dying because of something I'm not paying attention to. Well, I, I think you've put your finger on another issue that 
keeps this particular problem from the general public and making the impression we'd like to have them make. And that is that a lot of these people, you know, they hear bumps and, and, and grinds sort of around their home and they have no clue that birds have been hitting the window and, and dying as a result. The way we put vegetation around our windows and our homes and workplaces hide the dead and dying. Those animals that are injured, you know, if they survive the strike, they'll find refuge, you know, to hide themselves so they don't become vulnerable to scavengers or other things. So the problem is exacerbated by the fact that it's it's largely hidden and people have to be convinced that it's actually happening. I can tell you how many times people have told me that they've never had any window strikes at their homes. And every time I go to look at their homes and we walk around, I find all kinds of evidence of bodies and skeletons and smudges on their windows that you know, convince them that, no, it's happening there too. It's just that they're unaware of it. Um, I'm I'm sort of sorry in a way that you shared with me that tragic accident of that child on the cycle. I mean, I did not know that. And um, I knew, of course, about the safety glass, but that, that's an unbelievable big eye-opener. But you also touched a nerve too. Um, I tell my students, you know, even to this day, this morning when I taught class, I said, you know, when I was your age uh, and I finished school, there was a war going on. And this was, I'm so old, I was before draft numbers and they took me on the service. And the first thing, of course, psychologically, they teach you as a soldier and being able to fight with someone else is that your enemy is never really another human being. And this is, again, getting back to the idea of the of thinking about birds as objects or other organisms. And there are, of course, in biology classes and the things that I teach about and the way I try to lead my life is to try to impress upon people how really important and how valuable life is. Now, of course, as humans, we're mostly self-centered. And like when we have vacations and the students are going to go away, you know, in the not too distant future for Thanksgiving, I remind them how special they are and how they represent such a long and successful lineage of life that came before them in their own family. And they owe it to themselves and their family and to me to come back to make sure that they're safe and careful in their environment. We can't make those kinds of claims and we can't appeal to those birds because the glass is again, just invisible to them. They just don't get it and they can't discriminate. And so they end up tragically dying for unknown reasons. You may recall that in the end of my book, I point out, look at, picture a population of organisms, whatever they might be, and they're losing you know, family members, they're losing neighbors, they're using uh, 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 workplace uh, companions, and and they don't understand why that's happening. And it turns out that there's this force. And so an alien visits their population and sees what's causing the problem and solves it. And then I say, you know, at the end of the book, I said, you know, think about the windows as the force that's indiscriminately killing the members of the population. And think about us humans as the aliens that have the answer to solving it for them. Uh, and if we can apply that to the bird populations, we can apply some success to their survival. Exactly, yeah. I was also gonna say as a wildlife rehabilitator, I get calls all the time for birds that have flown into windows. But unfortunately and sadly, every spring, I get multiple calls from a university down the road who I shall not mention by name. I've got women in their 40s and 50s calling me on the phone, crying. These are grown women crying, telling me what what can we do about all these songbirds are flying into the sides of this 
building, which which I will add was built by a world-renowned architect. I come down there, I scoop up the birds that are still alive and try to help them. And some of them make it, some of them don't. But when I say to these employees, what floor are you on? I can't tell you that. What department do you work for? I'm not going to tell you that. Well, who's your supervisor? I can call the supervisor and try to get the maintenance department to put up something to screen the windows. I, I can't tell you that. Hmm. It's po- it's political. None yeah. of them want to get in trouble. They don't want their careers affected. So they sit there all day in front of these windows watching songbirds bounce off them and die, you know, terrified for their jobs. And that makes my job so much harder because if I had names and areas and departments, then I could maybe get this university to to do something. Yeah. Well, universities and and colleges in general, you know, they're lavishly covered with glass and they have the same kind of issue. And my experience is that there are some that have put this on their list for sustainability. Uh, Mercifully, after all these years at my institution, I'm proud to point out that they've dedicated a brand new building just for being sustainable. It's not just recycling water or anything else. They've transformed all the windows to be safe for birds. And they're hoping that this particular construction will be used as a model for other institutions to to copy. And uh, so so I'm 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 very, again, grateful for that. But it took a long time getting there. And we still have a horrendous number of, of buildings on our campus that are not been treated and they are killing birds, just like you're describing at this university. Um, I can recall uh, interacting with Emory University back down in uh, Georgia and how the uh, building manager finally got tired of doing exactly what you were doing, picking up all these dead birds. So he put one in his pocket and he had a meeting of the maintenance of the of the leaders uh, in the Treasury Department and others who were planning for additional construction. And he brought this bird out of his pocket and put it on the table and it got their attention. I don't know, you know how we can clone these kind of people that have a mission for educating and informing and getting some action done at their institutions, but we certainly need it because the amount of attention that's been given, especially to our places that we would predict should know better, our colleges and universities, they should know better, uh, but they're, they're havens, unfortunately, of death instead of enlightenment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So talk to me now about light pollution. I understand that a lot of birds, especially songbirds, migrate at night. What does lighting do to the birds when they're flying? Does it attract them? I mean, do they think it's the sun or the horizon line of sunrise? Well, there's no doubt about it. Birds are what they call phototactic. They are certainly attracted to lights. And there's no question that that plays a part in uh, helping to explain the number of birds that die at windows. But you know, again, for fear of uh, attracting uh, the negative attention of some of my conservation colleagues, I like to describe the relevance here. Now, when you have these large kills that take place in cities where skyscrapers have, have bright lights that attract the birds, these situations are really kind of unusual. They're not the norm. Uh, and, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be on a plan to encourage as many building developers and people, managers, to turn off their lights during migratory periods. It's very important. You know, bird migration takes place, you know, about six o'clock at night for these nocturnal migrants. We're talking about sparrows and warblers and various insect eaters primarily. And they leave at six. They 
descend about two o'clock in the morning, and now they're in areas where they rest and feed uh, during the day and get ready for their next leg of their migration. And on bad weather conditions, the ceiling of the clouds are low enough so that the birds are trying to fly underneath it. And it's at these lower altitudes that the city lights attract them. And they don't actually hit the buildings and cause their deaths. They fly in and out of the light. They become confused and exhausted and they flutter to the ground. And now they're in the canyons of concrete and glass. And that's where they get killed. They get killed in the early morning in large numbers. They're not dying, striking these windows up high. And you know, we're talking 5 billion individual birds that are traveling like this time of the year from North America to Central and South America. And if, you know, we were to say that those lights on most nights of travel, right, were attracting them into these danger zones, we should expect hundreds, if not thousands of birds dying every day in these cities. But it doesn't happen. It happens only on these rare occasions when the combination of atmospheric conditions, the weather, draws the animals into the reach of those lights. And so in 9-11, it's going to come up in a few days, and they're going to have the tribute to light, uh, you know, sending up into the sky several kilometers. I mean, that's an unbelievable and unusual situation, and it will attract birds. And there's an agreement amongst the Audubon Society and the people who are providing the tribute of light to turn the lights out when the birds start congregating and then permit them to dissipate and then turn the lights back on again until more animals are accumulated. Uh, and that particular instance is very, very unusual. I remember a paper in one of our proceedings of the Academy of Natural Sciences was using that particular issue to try to describe the attraction of light. Well, there is no cloud cover that's forcing the birds to fly lower in those situations. That light on a clear night goes several miles into the air. And so there is no safe distance, but most times, right? If you look from National Geographic or anybody else showing you a picture of satellite of the lit up parts of North America, you would see it looks like a light bulb just about throughout the entire country. And you don't have these animals being attracted in huge numbers to cities where they're being slaughtered on a regular basis. Again, under unusual conditions, Yes, they're there. Yes, they're diet large numbers. Yes, reporters live there and write about them in large numbers. And they're more visible in front of storefronts of selling shoes and dresses and suits uh, than they would be hiding in the pyracantha after they've struck a window or been hit at your home or in a small suburban workplace. So lights are important. We should turn them off. We should not have them be complicit in this mortality factor. But they're not really the target that they are, they should be for our attention in solving this bird window issue. You know, more energy, more uh, education, more influence should be given to our lower residential homes and protecting the birds from uh, uh, this tragedies uh, than, than spending most of our time. Because we don't wanna give people the impression you turn the light off on your back deck and you're going to save bird lives. That's just not going to happen. And you don't want to give the impression that if you turned all the skyscraper lights in all the major cities in North America, the problem is going to go away. It isn't. It's going to be still here. And the reason it's going to be here is the glass, both clear and reflective, are invisible to these animals. They're active, you know, at times even in the dark when we're not, like three o'clock in the morning, they're, they're starting to move around. And they're vulnerable, right? They're vulnerable to this to these uh to this horrific killer so 
we want to, again, be mindful and do everything we can to try to protect the animals. But scale again and uh, reasons matter and the emphasis of our energy and our protection should be uh, on our residential homes and smaller buildings rather than, you know, mucking around with trying to turn out lights in every skyscraper in the world. Well, I have to say the time goes by so fast when I have you on the show. <laughs> but, you know, as we wrap up, I was just going to say, so some good things for listeners to do if they're interested in making a difference to help birds, get a copy of Solid Air Invisible Killer. Read the book on how to paracord windows and start paracording windows in your house. Um, you know, it, it start with the ones that are causing the most problem. There is such a thing as repeat offender windows. Sometimes it depends on how the light is shining. The sun is shining on the window, creates an incredible reflection of trees and sky behind it. Paracord those windows. And what else would you add to that? Oh, I think uh, take a look at some of those products where they're easily applied, like tapes and uh, feather-friendly type uh, 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 products that are available. They're easy on, they're cheap, and they and they save bird lives. One thing, Catherine, before we leave, I wanted to point out, you asked me, you know, about three things that are important things that people should know and do. And, and one of them, you know, all of these we've talked about, uh, uh, perhaps except the last one I'm going to mention, but education is so important. You know, we really have to, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that criticize education for a lot of good reasons. Um, but really, for us humans and trying to learn things, it's it's kind of the only game in town. So we have to do the best we have with what we what we got. So uh, getting uh, the word out that this glass is an indiscriminate killer, getting the word out that it can be solved and getting the word out that we want to encourage action. Another thing is encouraging the uh protection at homes, right? To get people in their own homes, like you've just described, uh, to take some action to, to save them. And the third thing I would point out is to encourage people uh, to talk to their architects and their developers and their lawmakers to, to help stimulate legislation that'll protect these animals. You know, you and I can plead all we want for volunteerism, but there's nothing like uh, a directive that says, you know, your government thinks that if you put up this feather friendly or you put up these paracord strings or if you install uh, a fritted or, or acid etched glass in your home uh, with patterning on them to transform your windows into berries that birds will see and avoid. And that is a requirement uh, that'll do a lot more than us trying to plead with uh, volunteer efforts. So uh, it's important that our legislators know that this is an issue that deserves their attention and they should use their talents and writing laws to protect these animals that we all need and enjoy and care for. I'd like to thank Dr. Daniel Clem for joining us today. You can find out more about Daniel and his work protecting birds from glass by going to danielclemjr.org. You can also order his book, Solid Air, Invisible Killer, by going to his website, or to Amazon.com. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook.
And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.